The story continues. One of the dinner guests, on hearing Jesus say all this, said to him, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many people. And at the time for the dinner, this person sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've just bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my apologies. And another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. So please accept my apologies. And another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the servant returned and reported this to his master. And the owner of the house became very angry and said to his servant, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the roads and the lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. For the good news of Jesus Christ, let us pray. God, as you invite us to feast here together on your love, on your compassion and justice, we ask that you would be with us here in your Holy Spirit, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable to you. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. Last Sunday night, I attended a Rosh Hashanah dinner with some neighbors, and we had place cards at each of our seats to let us know where we were to sit down. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go to many dinners anymore where I have a place card. It's usually kind of a free-for-all. And I knew in talking to the hostess beforehand that the reason that she had done that was to kind of control or guide the conversation a little bit. To, to sort of obviate some social awkwardness or social anxiety. You see, it's a family in which there's the current wife and the ex-wife, some stepchildren, some neighbors, some relatives from far away, and she just wanted to guide the different ways we like to speak and be with each other. When I started to sit down at my place, it was clear that I couldn't sit there because it's where the tables came together and my legs wouldn't fit, so I messed up the whole order together. But as it seemed, it went pretty well. I haven't checked back with her yet, but it made me think, as we look at these passages, about the way we hold dinner parties and what it means to give someone a place to sit. It's often a way of guiding or even controlling the situation, trying to, as my host was, to ease communication and connection. But it also can indicate where your place is in relationship. We see this a lot at wedding receptions where you often have a table for just the wedding party and their family, and then it spreads out from there and you can see the inner and outer circles on the reception floor. We see it at state dinners and diplomatic receptions or the seating arrangements, either formal or informal, around boardroom tables. Now, in the soft interpretation, seating arrangements are about these sort of connections of inner and outer circles. In the harder interpretation, it's about status and power. 
Now, in the ancient world, status and power were very much on the minds of people when they sat down to eat together. And in this story we hear, Jesus is at a party where he's a guest of one of the high Pharisees. Now, those of us who know in the Gospels, Jesus is always at, in argument with the Pharisees, critiquing their ways as they are critiquing his ways. You would think maybe that he would show a little more grace as a guest at the home of one of the high Pharisees. But it doesn't quite go that way. We left out the part where they have a discussion about what it means to heal on the Sabbath. The Pharisee says the law says not to do anything on the Sabbath, but Jesus goes ahead and heals someone right in front of them. But we skipped right to the dinners. And you can imagine that after the meet and greet and the cocktails and the appetizers, one of the head servants rings the little dinner bell and they go in to sit down. They've already had a little bit of a rocky start with this healing on the Sabbath, But Jesus takes a polite look at the way that all these people are jostling for position around the table, how they're trying to seem nice about it, but it's clear where their ambition goes. And he just blurts out without being asked, you know, I was just thinking, when someone invites you to a wedding, don't try to sit at the head table at your own initiative. Next thing you know, the host is going to ask you to sit down and give up that seat In case someone higher up has come along, just sit at the back of the room. It's a humble way to go about life. And anyway, it'll just keep you more in your place. I wonder how people responded at this dinner when Jesus spoke up like that. More than likely, they felt a little chagrined at this none-too-subtle rebuke of all the snooty dinner guests that a lot of them stopped in their tracks and with downcast eyes just plopped down in the seat closest to them that very moment. But Jesus is on a roll now. It's not exactly mismanners, but he keeps going. He addresses his host directly, but Jesus, or he rather, he doesn't direct him, address him directly, but he essentially gives a critique of the guest list for that dinner party. He says, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or rich people And he was describing everyone around the table. Instead, go out and invite the poor, the blind, and the crippled. Now, at this point, I imagine a lot of the guests were ready to skulk away. The fun is over. Who is this guy? He acts like he's the son of God or something. People are getting a little itchy in their seats, looking uncomfortably at the food, and knowing glances around the table are saying, you knew this would happen if we invited him. And then we heard in this second part of the story that one of the guests blurts out almost like a pious greeting card-like aphorism, blessed is the one who eats at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, it's related to what Jesus was talking about, but it's sort of an attempt to move right on to the next thing. It's maybe a little bit like trying to smooth things over, sort of like saying, how about how the Red Sox are doing, or... Hasn't this been strange weather lately? The current dinner party has reached a depth of social awkwardness and probably social anxiety. At this, well-meaning guest points forward to what everyone could only hope would be a far happier banquet one day in the by and by in the kingdom of God. But it didn't work. And speaking of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and he goes on to tell them this second parable. A rich man issues an invitation. Every last person has been invited, but they all give excuses why they can't come. Now, some people say that the flaw here is that these would-be guests were too greedy or they were too preoccupied with their lives. 
But that's not the intention. This parable is often known as the parable of the great banquet. And I think very clearly Jesus is trying to talk about what the kingdom of God might look like. Actually, not just in heaven, but here on earth. And there's a sense here that Jesus is saying, let me paint a picture to you. I almost think he's indicating all of his fellow Jews who were sitting around the table and saying, you know, we used to think we were the chosen ones all along, and we've had this exclusive relationship with Yahweh, with God Almighty. But I'm here to tell you we're going to open this thing up. We're going to open up the tent, the doors, pull up the tent flaps. The people who we thought, by definition, were excluded, we're now going to start including them. And we're going to go out into the streets and the byways and highways of life and find those who might normally not sit at our tables who are truly hungry for more than just food and invite them to feast with us. Columnist David Brooks has recently written about this kind of great banquet at a friend's home in Washington, D.C. He wrote about it in his new book and in a column three years ago. Kathy and David are the hosts at this home, and they have a son named Santi who went to the D.C. public schools. Santi had a friend who sometimes went to school hungry, so he would occasionally invite his friend to come and eat and sleep at his house. And that friend told a friend who had a friend who had a friend. And now when you go to dinner at Kathy and David's house on Thursday night, there may be 15 to 20 teenagers crammed around the table. And later there will be groups of them in the basement or in the few small bedrooms upstairs. The kids who show up at Kathy and David's and Santi's table have endured the ordeals of modern poverty. Homelessness, hunger, abuse, sexual assault. Almost all of them have seen death firsthand to a sibling or a friend or parent. Some don't have any beds at home. Some haven't been around a family dinner table since they were young children. And yet, by some miracle, the hostile soil in which they have grown up has produced what Brooks calls charismatic flowers. Thursday dinner is the big social occasion of the week. Kids come from around the city. David and Kathy serve spicy chicken and black rice. Cell phones are not allowed, as Kathy says, be in the now. And the kids call Kathy and David mama and dad. And they're unfailingly polite. They clear the dishes They turn toward one another's love like plants turn toward the sun and burst with big, glowing personalities. Around this table, there are frequent celebrations. Somebody passed the GED exam. Someone got a job. Someone graduated from barber school. They celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and graduations. They perform songs together. And each meal, they go around the table, and everybody has to say something that nobody else knows about them. Sometimes people throw some complicated things on the table. A 17-year-old girl is dealing with a pregnancy. Another young woman has a failing kidney and Medicaid refuses to pay the cost for a new one. A young man announces that he's bisexual. Another admits that he's depressed. Brooks started going to dinner there about five years ago, as he says, hungry for something beyond food. And each meal he sees that people show their commitment to care for one another 
Because of all the difficult parts of their lives, there is plenty of affirmation around the table about how they are loved, how they are needed. He took his daughter once, and as they walked out, she said, that's the warmest place I can ever imagine. Now, those of you who are familiar with Brooks' writing know that he's a political columnist based in Washington, D.C. He witnesses and reports on a lot of viciousness and, as he puts it, vulgarity and depravity in our culture and in our political system. But he says these Thursday evening meals have been a weekly uplift. They've even helped save his life because they're a home of a place to remember what is beautiful about our country and what we can do to bring out its loveliness. The kids need what all teenagers need, bikes, laptops, listening hearts. As one young woman told Kathy, the host, thank you for seeing the light in me after she had a good cry with her on the couch. And David and Kathy have set up a charitable organization called AOK, which stands for All Our Kids, to help each of the kids come into their own fullness. Now, when Brooks first wrote about this three years ago, four of the kids had started college that year. One had joined City Year, the National Service Organization. And as he puts it, poverty up close is so much more intricate and unpredictable than the picture of poverty you get from the grand national debates. The kids can project total self-confidence one minute and then slide into utter lostness the next. For instance, the college application process often seems like a shapeless fog to them. Nobody's taught them the concrete steps to move along the way. One young woman lied on her financial aid forms because she didn't want to admit that her father was dead or that her mother was on drugs, how messed up her home life actually was. But as he puts it, there's no margin of error for these kids And this young woman would have lost her college dreams forever if not for a squad of adults ready to mobilize around her. The adults in this community give the kids the chance to present their gifts. For instance, after the first dinner he went there, Brooks heard a young man named Ed read a poem from his cracked flip phone that he first thought was a poem from Langston Hughes, but it turned out to be the teenager's own poem. Kasari is another kid in the room who has a voice that sounds like it came out of 1920s New Orleans jazz. Madeline and Thalia practice friendship as if it were the highest art form. A boy named Jamel loses self-consciousness when he starts to talk about engine repair. The gift of this dinner, he says, is that it's complete intolerance of any social distance. When he first came there, he held out his hand to shake Ed's hand, and Ed looked at it and said, we hug here, and they've been hugging and hanging on each other ever since. One veteran youth activist told Brooks that he's about, when talking about which programs turn around kids' lives, he said, I still haven't seen one program change one kid's life. What changes people is relationships. Somebody willing to walk through the shadow of the valley of adolescence with them. Souls are not saved in bundles. Love is the necessary force. Now, Brooks goes on to say that the problems facing our country are deeper than the economy or health care or cyber and trade threats from other countries. In his analysis, it's a crisis of solidarity. 
a crisis of segmentation, of spiritual degradation and intimacy. And this all our kids' home has been a visit for him to a better future, more powerful than any political tract about what we need next. Sometimes Kathy and David are asked how they ended up with so many kids flowing through their house, and they look at how many kids are out there, and they respond, how is it possible you don't have so many kids? My guess is that many of us don't have the same sort of energy or resources that Kathy and David have to throw open their doors to dozens of teenagers. But we all have opportunities every day to do as Jesus invites us to do, to open the doors to the banquet a little wider, to put up the flaps of the tent. Here's some ways to think about it. What would it be like if you who are in school would invite the kid who always seems to be alone to sit with your group? What it would be like for you to reach out to someone very different from you? What would it be like to give up your seat on the bus to someone who got on the bus late? Or to stop someone from bullying someone else? Or to put a post on social media, something kind about someone who rarely gets noticed? Or perhaps tweet a quotation, maybe even one of the verses from this gospel lesson about opening doors for other people and looking to see who's left out. What would it be like to invite someone that doesn't often get invited to a party or an outing? And what would it be like if someone asks you why you're doing this and you say it's because what God wants us to do? In a moment, we're going to celebrate World Communion Sunday which is a way of commemorating the different ways that people may celebrate communion around the world. It's an act of solidarity that was born in the 1930s and started solidifying during World War II when people felt out of necessity they need to come together. It's a way to remember that we belong to one another, at least in the Christian faith, regardless of our shape, our size, our nationality, our ethnicity, the color of our skin, even our doctrines or our various interpretations of Scripture and the different ways we do church, it's a reminder that when we come to this table, there's enough to share, that grace and forgiveness are the real dishes we serve up here, that we are called to belong to God and to one another all around the globe. And this is a central part of our good news as we accept our role in the broader family of humanity, that grace and forgiveness and belonging that we are allowed and invited to find at this table, we are meant to share it wherever we go. Amen.